night before Christmas, when all through the lab, not a creature was stirring, not even a postgrad. The test tubes were drying by the sink with care, in hopes that the good scientists soon would be there. The principal investigators were nestled all snug in their bed, while visions of accepted manuscripts danced in their heads. And the dean in her lab coat and I in my safety garment had just become excited for a long winter's experiment. When out near the fume hood there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bench to see what was the matter. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but the blinding light of reason and eight famous science tears. On a sleigh with the little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than computers made calculations he came. And he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Einstein, now Curie, now Tesla and Newton. On Darwin, on Hawking, on Mendel, on Franklin. And so begins our sciencey tales, and what was once mysterious will soon be unveiled. So keep your ears tuned in, and don't you dare turn the dial, as Manisha, Chris, Claire, and Stu bring you your stories Lost in Science style. That's right, you are tuned to Lost in Science, and we are doing a sciencey Christmas carol, a science carol, if you will, and we have stories of science past, science present, and science future for you on this week's show. Chris, from the dim distant past, what have you brought us? In the spirit of of the original Christmas Carol, I have like a tale of horror of, well, a scientific scandal from years past. A famous story of scientific misadventure to entertain your ears. And don't we all just love a Christmas scandal? Huh? Scandal. (laughs) Scandal. Oh, I get it now. Never mind. (laughs) Claire! Well, as the ghost of Christmas, Science Christmas present... I like Science Christmas presents, can I just say? (laughs) I am obviously the best uh, ghost here because I'm the one that gives the presents, the science presents. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about our seasons, the here and the now and the Christmas season in Australia and what is in Australia and isn't in the Northern Hemisphere and why we should be celebrating it from a science point of view. Interesting. I'm actually going to be talking about seasons too, but I'm going to be talking about space seasons. What? Is that the future? Yeah, Christmas in space. (laughs) So once once we've left Earth, how are we going to celebrate Christmas? Or are we going to celebrate Christmas? And where would we be doing it in space? I envision so much spray snow. So much space. Depends where we are. We Zero probably don't need space. fake snow. <laughs> Doctor Who finds an excuse every year to, to find Christmas on another planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, we're, we're, I'm going to have a quick look at that. Uh, so stay tuned for all of that and more later on in the show. Okay, you are listening to the Lost in Science Christmas Carol. Now, I've got to say this story is not very Christmassy, so maybe I missed the brief here. But it is in the past. That's that's, that's pretty count for something. That's yeah, pretty so. grinchy. It's pretty grinchy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Scrooge Scrooge was showed all sorts of things by the ghost of Christmas past. Not only Christmases, but also some all other horrible things that he exactly. got. This is true. So this is your lack of Christmas spirit. This is my lack of Christmas spirit. Well, this is a tale. Um, it may sound. You know, a bit far-fetched, but it is a well-documented, it is a, well it is a true story. Uh, and it happened over 100 years ago. 
So this was in, in March 1903. Uh, there was a French physicist, uh, Prosper René Blondelot. Apologies for the pronunciations, I must say. And he was studying X-rays, which are fairly new on the scene at this time. They'd been discovered in 1895. Uh, now, Blondelot was trying to see if X-rays could be polarised. Uh, now, he did manage to achieve a form of polarisation, but it wasn't with X-rays. It was with a new form of radiation that he discovered. Did he have to go to the North Pole? No, he didn't have to go to the North Pole. He did it in his laboratory at the University of Nancy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. Um, because there was the University of Nancy, he called them N-rays. Uh, and it became a sensation in the world of science. And there was a flurry of amazing discoveries from him and his colleagues. Uh, now, N-rays, they were very mysterious and very subtle. You're probably wondering, I've never heard of these. No. But they had some amazing effects. So they were given off by a number of different sources, including the sun, you know, clearly. But also certain materials seem to be good sources of N-rays. Um, they seem to have some relation to materials under stress or maybe not in equilibrium. So tempered steel was one of the common sources of N-rays. Um, and uh, whereas other things like um, aluminium and wood seem to never give off N-rays, um, water could block them entirely. Well, pure water could, but any impurities in the water would suddenly become completely transparent to N-rays. They're remarkable things. Now, what were they, you might be wondering? Well, how they were detected was a little strange. So their main effect seemed to be to increase illumination. What this means, if you were, say, in a, in a darkened room, you're looking at a piece of paper, in the presence of N-rays, the paper would be easier to see. Sounds a lot like what I would call light. Yeah, possibly. But these you couldn't actually <laughs> see them as a light source. They would increase your ability to see light. They also supposedly increased the luminosity of phosphorescent materials which um, you know, they found a much more reliable method of detecting N-rays. You know, the, the, the glowing materials would appear to glow more brightly in the presence of N-rays. You're frowning, Claire. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the ball to drop. Yeah. yeah, look, no, they do sound unlikely, but, they, but look, you know, they did manage to produce some fairly reliable results. So Blondelot, he, um, he measured their wavelengths. He found three different methods of measuring their wavelengths and got consistent results. Um, and so he confirmed the accuracy. He right. even claimed to produce a photograph verifying their existence. Wow. Showing, basically showing electric spark that uh, appeared brighter when there were N-rays present. So he said, this is photographic proof of the existence of N-rays. Um, yeah, and the discoveries kept coming. Um, soon they found different kinds of radiation. So they thought that, okay, N-rays seem to increase illumination. Could there be some form of radiation that decreases it? And indeed they did found this and they called them N1 rays. Uh, and then they found that living organisms gave off a radiation very similar, but not exactly the same as N-rays. This kind of physiological radiation was turned. It was soon being used for like imaging the human body, including brain activity. You could actually detect which parts of the brain were being used when someone was thinking using his early form of brain imaging using N-rays. It's incredible stuff. Um, it was a big success and it was a source of national pride for the French. The French Academy announced that they would give Blondelot the Lalande Prize, which gave him a gold medal and 20,000 francs for his discovery of N-rays. You may have noticed something here, though. All these discoveries were coming out of France. Uh, that was kind of the catch here. So, because... Other countries, scientists in other countries had a lot of trouble replicating the experiments. Uh, so Lord Kelvin, you know, big luminaries, um, N-ray illuminated luminaries like Lord Kelvin, 
couldn't replicate them. Um, there's one German physicist, Heinrich Rubens. He had the Kaiser uh, knocking on his door, well, not literally, demanding mm-hmm. that he demonstrate N-rays, that he produced some German N-rays, and he just couldn't do it. They were all flummoxed. Uh, they had an international meeting in Cambridge in September 1904. And at that meeting, they asked, uh, there was an American physicist there, Robert W. Wood, who had a bit of a reputation as a bit of a debunker. They asked him if he could sort it out. He was a bit reluctant because he said he'd already wasted a whole morning investigating them. Um, <laughs> but uh, the journal Nature eventually persuaded him to go and investigate in person. So he, he travelled to France. Uh, he, he went to Bonnet's laboratory and he observed the experiments. Um, he couldn't actually see the N-rays himself, but uh, Blondlot said that was just because you know, his eyes weren't accustomed to them. Um, but you know, Wood was still quite sceptical. Uh, he tried some a little bit of subterfuge. So there's one moment where Blondlot was using a metal file to generate N-rays and Wood exchange it with a, a ruler uh, and it still worked. So he started a bit more sceptical. And though they had the most convincing experiment. This is one where they basically measured the, the wavelength of the N-rays using a spectroscope that had been set up with aluminium prisms and lenses and you had this little kind of thread that had been soaked in some luminous material so it would glow when it was, when it was more when the N-rays were there. Uh, so Blondlot demonstrated how he could work out the wavelength using this and so what Wood did when the lights were turned off he took the uh, one of the prisms away and of course the experiment still went ahead with exactly the same results. <laughs> Um, and, you know, there's, this is when, you know, this is kind of the clincher for him. Now, the lab assistant was a bit sceptical, had noticed that Wood was kind of snooping around the equipment, and he said, do you mind if we try that again? Um, and this time he, he made sure the prism was in a very precise position on its support so he wouldn't know if it would be moved. So the lights went off, the assistant went to do the experiment. Wood kind of walked over to the equipment but didn't touch it, at which point the, um, the assistant said, I can't see anything, the American has done something to our experiment, and turned the lights on course that nothing had been done um but yeah so so wood then went home and the next day he wrote a letter to nature where he described what had happened except for the, the little double cross at the end there um he didn't actually name blonde lot by name but pretty much everyone knew what had what had happened uh the french started their own investigation it turned out that the majority of french physicists also agreed that n-rays weren't real there'd just been a handful <laughs> of them that were basically doing these experiments um yeah and that was pretty much the end of it N-rays. Um, Blondlot still received his award, but they gave it for his, the, you know, his whole life's work, not just for the for the N-rays. So he still got his twenty thousand francs. He did, he did, but it was kind of a bit of embarrassment. Sacre bleu. Yeah. <laughs> so now people often bring up this story as kind of the cautionary tale of how scientists themselves have to watch out for for self deception, and I think that is true. Clearly, but I also take it as a positive story because this whole debacle or debacle with um the N rays it la- sorry it lasted like less than two years and it was like a minority of scientists in one country. So I think it shows how science does correct itself when you have something outrageous like that. You know, people try to replicate it, they can't. Eventually, fairly quickly, it is it is debunked and, and thrown apart. So I think it's a big success for science. I take it to say. It's a positive story as we go into our, our Christmas present. So, folks, let me, the ghost of science Christmas present, take you on a journey. Not very far, really, as the journey is to the present, where we are at the moment, that is presently, right here, right now, um, in 
the Christmas season. And for all Australians, that season is summer. Uh, Now, there are a lot of garbage marketing campaigns out there that will try to dictate to us what Christmas is to us, even though we're in Australia. So think like, you know, the reindeer, the... Um, pine trees, the the proper Christmas, cele- yeah, the snow, <laughs> the celebrity chefs. Just, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of them on television. Actually, mm. seeing a lot of celebrity chefs, uh, fat old white guys dressed inappropriately for the season. Um, but all of this does not take into account the here and the now of Christmas space time, the seasonality of Australia, what is happening, and how things are changing. For example, take Christmas beetles also known as the Australian Christmas reindeer beetle. What? Reindeer? Yeah, the Australian Christmas reindeer. Well, I mean, okay, it's only known uh, as that by me, but um, I'm (laughs) going to rename the Christmas beetle the true Australian reindeer. Why don't you just call it Rudolph and be done with it? The Rudolph beetle. (laughs) The Rudolph beetle, totally. Well, the wrong colour for a start. Yeah, Yeah, well, so as um, our listeners will know, they are the most beautiful of the beetles. Um, They emerge around Christmas time and you probably know that they're emerging because they start launching themselves into your head as soon as you um, take a walk out onto your veranda around Christmas time. Um, Everyone's got fond memories of the Christmas beetles, yes? Yes. Yes. It was a pretty... Good coincidence that you have like Christmas beetles come out at Christmas time. Well, I mean, obviously that's why they get their name, but they, in fact they were Christmas shiny. They're like they're like little baubles. Oh, they are like little baubles. They're about two to three centimeters, very colourful in bronzes, greens, browns, like iridescent, wouldn't you say? Yes, very metallic. Yeah. Um, they eat eucalyptus once they become adults. Um, they eat grass apparently when they're larvae. Just a couple of FYIs on the Christmas beetles. Um, no- oh yeah, no, no good for the uh, the traditional Boxing Day turf. I have to say that they have to control the larvae of Christmas beetles to make sure the turf is playable. Do they? Yes, they do. Nah. Do, you, do you stick your keys in the ground to try and... No, you just basically poison it. Okay. <laughs> now, there hasn't been a lot of research done on our um, Christmas beetles. They are a beautiful emblem, um, but up until now, we have taken them for granted that they will always be around. Um, anecdotally, we know that in the 1920s, they were reported to have been in such huge numbers in Sydney that tree branches were bending under the weight um, of Christmas beetles. And um, they were, like, falling into the harbour and drowning in, like, en masse. Um, So there used to be quite a lot of them. But now, you know, apparently, anecdotally, we don't see as many. But we just don't have the research there at the moment to say whether that's actually the case. Um, Which is alarming because there are 36 species in the genus uh, with all but one endemic to Australia, which is pretty incredible. Um, So this Christmas, take the time to notice the beetles around you. um, And hey, you can even download an app to help you identify which Christmas beetle you see in your backyard. It's called the Xmas Beetle app. And it shows all the different 36 species in their brilliance. Are there any other festive insects? Like, is there like an Easter ant or a... (laughs) Hanukkah wasp or a um, Queen's birthday earwig or something like that. (laughs) No. No. Now, this ghost has another seasonal Christmas uh, space-time issue to make, this time with Christmas trees. 
Um, now, these pine trees, they're from the Northern Hemisphere. They just won't do. They just won't do. Mine, mine is definitely from the Northern Hemisphere, but I think it was made in China. So... <laughs> That's, that's my Christmas tree. That's right. That most of them are plastic. Yeah. And the ones that aren't plastic are from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they're not evocative of the seasonality um, of Christmas in December in our fair country. Um, so I'm going to put forward another couple of suggestions for us. Actually, two suggestions. If you're in New South Wales, um, how about instead of a pine tree, you get a Christmas bush? They are endemic to New South Wales. They're very beautiful. They're, um, it actually uh, is a bush that decorates itself so it it just um blooms <laughs> with these beautiful red flowers around christmas time again lucky it was called the christmas bush <laughs> yeah the, the timing yeah. is impeccable um or alternatively if you are still hell-bent on getting a pine tree how about getting a wallamide pine um you see if everyone banded together um and got a wallamide pine not only would you be getting one of the world's oldest and rarest plants, um, as you know, they date back to the dinosaurs, um, but you would also be ensuring the Wollemise pine's survival now. So there are actually less than 100 of these adult trees known to exist in the wild. So everyone who grows a clone, pretty much, a clone of one of these plants, um, is helping to contribute to their conservation efforts. So... Making a change now is going to be helping the Wollamai pine for the future. This ghost of here and now is almost done. I just want you to equip you with a bit more information uh, to help you make that decision when you're buying up some of those lovely, delicious, to some people, prawns to throw on the barbie over Christmas. Um, now, prawns to most people are a very Australian um, way to celebrate Christmas. In fact, we uh, munch through approximately half a billion prawns around Christmas. They look good on the Christmas tree as well, like just hanging there. They, oh, they're goodness. like the candy cane of the sea. Yeah, <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are. They are the candy cane of the sea. But don't leave them on your wall of my pine for too long because... You will ruin Christmas for you and everybody you love. Now, not all prawns are created equal. They're not all equal. Prawns can be farmed. Others are wild caught. Um, some are caught in Australian waters. Some are farmed in other countries. So about 20% of Australian prawns are farm grown, mostly in Queensland. Uh, and the most common species are the black tiger prawn and the banana prawn. Um, so quite a lot of research by the CSIRO has happened in the last couple of years, working with prawn farmers to develop healthy, fast-growing prawns that can be produced efficiently with sort of environmental strategies in place to deal with the effluent that comes out of those particular farms. Um, and also to try to address um, a, a perceived dependency on marine-based feeds. Um, however, you know, that's just 20%. The rest of our prawns are harvested by prawn trawlers that operate um, in Australian fisheries. So these prawns are typically your king prawns, um, banana prawns as well, and tiger prawns can also, as well as school prawns and endeavour prawns. I've never heard of these. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, yeah You've heard of the endeavour yeah, prawns? Yeah. yeah. Um, so there are industry guidelines um, and strict regulations around this. 
Um, and there are a couple of fisheries that have certification for um, the Marine Stewardship Council, which is an independent body that certifies sustainable fisheries worldwide. Um, however, um, this sort of fishery still takes quite a toll on the environment. Um, and the ones from overseas, well, the government has a ban on imported prawns at the moment due to disease outbreaks. I think it's some sort of white spot disease um, that caused outbreaks through importing through overseas prawns. Um, and there's been a couple of outbreaks on Australian farms as well. So, so does that mean prawns are going to be more expensive this year? Well, yeah, it does mean prawns are going to be a lot more expensive this year. So... Yeah, think in the present um, and if you want more information to help you make decisions in the moment, um, check out the Sustainable Seafood Guide app which can tell you all about um, what seafoods are fished um, and grown where. Um, but that's it for me from the present. And remember, folks, the only thing you can change is what's happening now. And that brings us to Christmas in the future. <laughs> or as I've called it, Christmas in space. So are you saying the future is in space? Is well, like... potentially. Okay. Um, so obviously we know that, you know, as Claire was saying, the celebration of Christmas more or less coincides with, well, in Australia, the summer solstice, uh, which is pretty much the longest day of the year. It's around Christmas time. It's a little couple of days before. Um, and in the Northern Hemisphere, it's... The, uh, the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year, which is where we get a whole lot of our sort of Christmas traditions, like you were saying about pine trees. It's basically because it's the only green thing around. Um, and people thought, well, let's liven up the inside of the house by cutting down the only living thing we can find and dragging <laughs> it inside. Um, and, you know, also the, a lot of the traditional Christmas dishes that they eat in the Northern Hemisphere are also related to that whatever would keep through the winter. Um, they would basically scoff whatever was left over in the pantry uh, and oh, was is that where um, fruit mince pies? Yeah, come from? fruit mince pies and, and you know and brandy, ham, yeah. ham, and yeah, brandy soaked everything and, yeah. and plum puddings that have been you know sitting for months at a time. <gasps> so this is all to do with the uh, the Earth's orbit of the Sun, which basically has a wo bit of a wobble in it. So the two hemispheres get different amounts of sun depending on what time of year it is. So in Australia, we get lots of sun at Christmas time. In the northern hemisphere, they get very little sun. And that's what Christmas is. But with humans set to try colonising other planets, what is the future of Christmas in space? So the first stop is probably the moon. Um, there's lots of talk. People talking about getting moon bases, which will make it easier to then go to other planets because you won't have to keep re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and all that sort of business. So it'd be relatively easy to just transpose whatever the date on Earth is and just say, well, that's the date yeah. on the moon. The year is the same length. It's, so yeah, that's exactly. Work. That would work okay. Uh, you can't sing Good King Wenceslas when the moon shone down on the... When the, the Earth, Earth shone, shone down? down. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but if there are human colonies on a natural satellite, it would be kind of confusing for anyone who's actually living there because of the way the moon moves the length of time the sun shines on any given point on the moon mm. uh, is about two weeks long. So a day 
on the moon, daylight lasts for two weeks and then night lasts for two weeks. So Christmas Eve would be a really long wait. <laughs> and then, you know, by the end of Christmas Day, you'll be so bored of all your presents. It'd be, you know, two weeks after you've opened all your presents, it'd just be terrible to be a kid on the moon, let's be honest. Maybe our nearest satellite is not a fair comparison. It's such an odd little planetoid uh, floating around. Um, so let's look a bit further afield. The planet most likely to be colonised by humans in any future really is the planet Mars. On Mars, a day's length, it's not two weeks, it's almost the same as on Earth. Nearly the same length of a, of a single day. That's how long it takes for Mars that to That sounds turn. very convenient. This is going to work out just Very, fine. very convenient. It's not quite, it's, it's about 24 hours, 39 minutes and about 35 and a quarter seconds. So it will start to get out of sync after a little while. Um... And a Martian day has its own special name. Apparently the uh, the engineers and mission planners at NASA have decided that a Martian day is called a Sol, named a sol. after the sun, oh. the Sol. Uh, so they uh, use that in a number of ways, uh, and they talk about yester Sol when they're talking about mission oh, planning. Come they, on. Really, do they really do. They really do. They really do. Yes. And next to Sol is tomorrow. Next. Next. Next to Sol. You know, the next soul is... It's really, it's really bad to say that. I don't really want to have a conversation with a Martian engineer now. Well, look, they... I'm already you know, thinking about how I can get out of talking to this yeah, Martian. They're not, yeah. they're not always working, so sometimes they have a solar day. <laughs> because they're just such fun people at NASA. Um, but the days are about the same length as on Earth, but the solstices are quite a lot further apart. So Mars has seasons, like Earth has seasons. Sol-to-sol. Sol-to-sol, yeah. Um, but a Martian year consists of almost 669 sols. That's a long time to wait for your Christmas. That is a long time to wait. So it's about 689 Earth days. If, you, if, you're, if you're watching it from Earth, a Martian year would be... 689 days long. So would you, you're live on Mars, on, would you live longer on Mars because their years are longer? Um, no, I think you'd live for less Martian years. Ah. So considering a Martian, you'd only live to about 40, 50 tops, really, in Martian years. Um, so this is where actually some controversy sprung up, sprung up between astronomers and engineers and other various uh, people who've all got an opinion on how they should measure the Martian year, because obviously that doesn't fit on a standard Gregorian calendar because mm. there's too many days, too many days to fit in. So um, there, are, there are versions which have basically stretched the standard Gregorian calendar and just shoved a whole bunch more days in each month, which is a bit silly and there's not much point to doing it that way. Lousy smart weather. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, the, but that way they didn't have to invent any new uh, month names. No, no, true. That true. is that that was that was basically the reason they were just lazy. This went, oh, we'll just whack an extra fifteen days in every month. Something tells me these NASA engineers, all they want to do is invent new month names. Well, or day names. Yeah, well, they did. They've, well, they've, soul names, I mean. they've actually got uh, new names for the uh, for the weeks on Mars as well, or names for the days of the week on Mars. Um, but others have proposed calendars Mon with... Sol, Tube Sol, <laughs> Wen Sol. I mean, Sun Sol is ridiculous. <laughs> sun Sol. Sol Sol. So other people have proposed calendars with variously numbered months. Sir Patrick Moore, who is a famous British uh, astronomer, proposed a calendar with 18 months 
Um, he figured that was just a good number to have. Uh, but they all had a really weird numbers of days. So so each month had 38 days except the ones that had 37 days. So so Mars has got moons. Do like, they have like a month into their moons? Yeah, it's only the, their, their lunar months are only about six days long, no, so it doesn't really help. help. The um, and they're also on Mars would be horrible. They're also moving in weird orbits. Okay, you know, they're not synchronised yeah. in any way. Um, We've and, just got it so easy here, don't, don't we? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, like, it's like our calendar was built for the planet. It's amazing. <laughs> um, now, so a guy called Thomas Gengal in 1986 proposed a 24-month calendar for Mars, which he called the Darian calendar after his son Darius. Um, but he has come up with – so each each day in the Martian calendar has a, a different name to what it does on Earth. They're, you know, it's like uh, Sol Phobos, which is after one of the moons of uh, – of Mars and, you know, Sol Terra and all these different things of what you can see at different times. Um, and also the months have different names, which are based on uh, constellations. Oh. No, constellations, <laughs> mainly constellations. Although some of them, I think he's chosen uh, like Hindi names for various constellations. He doesn't just use the, the traditional <laughs> Latin Sagittarius right. and that sort That's of stuff. Too easy. He's pulled them all out from all over the place. Um, but his calendar is specifically designed for humans living on Mars. It's not actually based on any scientific measurement of anything. There's no relationship to the cycles of the moons of Mars or, you know, it just fits into a Martian year. The, uh, the weeks are seven days long because people are used to that. So when they get there, they'll be used to having a seven-day week with a weekend and all that sort of stuff. And the months are around about 30 days long, give or take. Um, so it's basically a a management calendar for people who are adapting to life on Mars. Um, but I guess considering it would take currently about six to eight months to fly from Earth to Mars, uh, there's a high likelihood that any kind of Martian culture that established itself would pretty much develop its own calendar and its own solid days in no time at all because they would just you know they would be a separate culture it would be like nothing we've ever seen before really um and you know basically the the date of martian christmas will be ultimately up to the martians to decide when that's going to be And so there you have it. That's where our show comes to a close. We hope you've learned something new and your curiosity flows. We have chatted about N-Ray's scandals in Science of Past and Science of Present brought us Christmas Beatles en masse. Science of Future taught us of festivities in space, a spectacular endeavor we may all soon face. But for now, we will end our journey with care through space and time we've ventured today on the air. Thanks for listening to what Science, Present, Past and Future have to say. And from everyone here at Lost in Science, we wish you a wonderful end to the year and a happy holiday.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, and if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get Lost in Science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.